Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the past three years, more than 10,000 men, women and children have died trying to cross this stretch of water. Migrants. People. Each one had a story, a hope, a dream. Over just six days, we'll witness the intensity of the rescue attempts. The helplessness of the migrants and the hopelessness of the effort to end the crisis. Keep breathing. Come on. Come on. Welcome to Free State, everybody. Myself and Joe are joined today by a journalist whose work we have admired for a long time. Her book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, won the Orwell Prize in 2022, and she is the current Irish Journalist of the Year. Sally Hayden, you're very welcome to Free State. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. The George Orwell Prize, that always means something. Well, it's a book that tells the story of uh, refugees and the, their journeys, attempts to get into Europe. Um, we will talk about a lot more, I think, in the, in this conversation. But it's uh, it's a book. When you read it, you think like there's so many shocking things. But even in a, as as a journalist, Sally, there's one thing I you know you kind of wonder: How did you get to that point where the book opens with you receiving a text? Uh, from somebody in, in Libya in a, in, a, in a refugee camp. And I find myself thinking, how are you the person at that point that uh, is getting that text? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. And actually, I can give you an answer, kind of, though I didn't know this at the time. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The book opens with me getting a message. It was 2018. Um, August, I think. And the message said, Hi, Sister Sally, we need your help. We're under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. And I, you know, like everybody, I get a lot of messages. Some are strange, some are spam, some are bots. You know, you don't really know what's behind something. I didn't take it that seriously, but I did respond to it. And I kind of said, you know, tell me a bit more about this and what unraveled was basically a story that was going to change my life my reporting it took over you know every day of my life for for the following years and um really exposed gross gross wrongdoing um in a way that would kind of ricochet in in many different directions and the way that I got that message was that I had actually done previous reporting in Sudan so Libya 
is a North African country. That was where the first person who messaged me was locked up in a, a migrant detention center in Libya. But a lot of the people who try, who end up in Libya, they travel through Sudan, which a lot of people will know is a massive North African country. And I had gone there in 2017 um, and done an investigation. But basically, all of this happens when you go kind of thinking that you know what the story is and actually you realize that you have no idea. And I had gone to Sudan to try and report on something else and I had been meeting refugees as part of that and I was on my own, you know, I was 27, I think, um, just going around Khartoum, you know, you talk to one person, then you talk to the next person. When I started speaking to refugees, they were saying, what you know you think you're reporting on this but actually what you should be reporting on is corruption in the UN refugee agency what they were saying was that the legal resettlement routes you know so um the very 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 limited routes to safety for very vulnerable refugees who have fled wars or dictatorships that that if you wanted to avail of them you had to pay money and they were saying sometimes tens of thousands of dollars and I had tried to report on this, gone to editors. The editors had been like, "This, you know, is this real? Like, you need more proof. It went Just on for... Just to be clear, Sally, pay the money to whom? Because our listeners won't be as familiar as you are with the subject matter. So the tens of thousands of dollars. So what they were, yeah, what they were saying was to pay that money to people associated with the UN Refugee yeah. Agency, um, which is obviously the UN agency mandated to look out for refugees um, and protect their rights. And... So I had, you know, gone to Sudan, was on my own, was being told this, kind of didn't fully believe it, started trying to back it up. It took me about 10 months. I ended up publishing an investigation that included an interview with someone who was working for a UNHCR in Sudan. And two days later, after constantly denying that there was any problem, UNHCR suspended resettlement nationwide and said that they were carrying out their own anti-fraud investigation. And they did eventually find one staff member guilty of soliciting bribes and abusing power. But that came around a year later. But sorry, that's a maybe quite intense uh, answer yeah. to the question yeah. of how I was contacted because my name then became known around Sudan, around the refugees in Sudan as the journalist who had, you know, kind of been involved in exposing this alleged corruption. And, and to be clear, UNHCR denied widespread corruption. They did, they did find this one person guilty. Um, but because of that, my, my name was passed around. And then when people were in need in Libya, which neighbors Sudan, they contacted people back in Sudan because it's along the same migration route towards Europe. And they said, who can we talk to if we're in a life or death situation? And the people they were in touch with said, contact Sally. So me not knowing that this was ever going to happen suddenly, you know, had thought that this one story was kind of winding down and then got contacted by a whole new group of people in another situation. And yeah, there's lots of there's lots of times as a journalist and as a person where you're like, you know, you could just ignore something or you could react. And in that case, I reacted. And yeah, people can read the book to see what came from that. It, uh, it, it shows you the power of one voice. Actually, we, we had a podcast, I don't think that long ago, and we were talking about, we touched on some of the corruption of the UN and of Frontex, who are the European Union's sort of Coast Guard that are supposed to be protecting these people. 
and we talked particularly about uh, the the tragedy in June last year, where the fishing boat bound for Italy from Libya sank off the Greek Greek coast, and 400 people drowned, but 100 were rescued. But the the frightening thing, and the sort of thing that that you have helped to start, you know, focusing people's minds on, was that. A lot of the survivors and the statements that they made had very, very serious accusations about what the European Coast Guard had done. And I mean, there was some absolutely blood-curdling testimony from survivors. I wonder, would you speak a bit about that? I mean, according to them, the reason that the boat capsized was that the European agencies, Coast Guards, had been pulling it out of the Greek Sea Rescue Zone into deeper, more treacherous waters. And so, you know, 500 precious human lives were lost. And uh, maybe you would, um, you know, talk a bit more about the extent of this sort of corruption of the idea. The people who are supposed to be protecting these vulnerable people are in fact often driving them to their deaths. So that we know, for example, that in Tunisia, they're 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 currently building an enormous graveyard for these people who are lost at sea, which seems to be, you know, in our, you know, from our perspective, a horrendous abuse of, of of vulnerable people. Yeah, I was actually in Tunisia in August, um, and I was in a graveyard for unidentified people. It, it was like a general graveyard, but it had a lot of graves of unidentified people and it is really shocking when you see just like graves basically what there was was just like dozens of numbers just like numbered remains of people that hadn't been identified and you see these numbers just stretched out and and also empty graves like waiting for more people to be added to them and yeah it is really horrifying and Actually, after that trip to Tunisia, I wrote, um, I'd been asked to write an op-ed for the New York Times about uh, what's happening. And I wrote one and didn't expect it to be put on the front page, which is what they did. And I was wondering, you know, in one sense, because I keep being asked to write about the scale of, you know, the death that's happening. And when I was thinking about what what is actually the, you know, you're always trying to say something new, but actually the, the, really the, terrible thing is how this has become normalized and when I filed it I was like actually I'm just going to title it like mass death becomes normalized because for me now that is really the headline and they actually put it on the front page and for me even though I had written it to see the New York Times front page saying mass death becomes normalized was really upsetting because then I was like am I even am I involved in normalizing it like it's it's just what like you're always questioning what can you say to to highlight actually the wrongdoing that is happening and I think a very important thing for me like if people follow my reporting if they read my book actually a lot of my reporting has come from me not understanding situations and suddenly realizing that I don't understand what I'm hearing or what I'm seeing and as a journalist the sources that I maybe was quoting as fact maybe questioning them a bit more as to you know are they actually accurately portraying the situation? And what we're seeing a lot is vulnerable people, their voices are being erased. And like I've tried definitely over the past few years to actually 
be checking with the most vulnerable people, with refugees, with asylum seekers. Um, you know, this is what's being said by the powerful organizations. Is this what's happening on the ground? And often there's major contradictions or major factual inaccuracies when you actually contrast those things. A, sorry, I was going to say there's... Uh, if you don't mind me saying, I mean, I just met you this evening for the first time, but a sense that there's a, a very matter-of-fact, implacable quality in your personality that, in a way, you know, is essential for someone who's on a crusade like this, that that um, there's a sense from you. I know that you, you studied law, and I'd say luckily for, for a lot of people who would have been cross-examined by you, you decided, you decided that your, your future, at least for the time being, lived elsewhere. But it is, it's, it, it's, it's a very obvious quality that you have, an implacability, a refusal to, to, to accept bullshit. And I wondered if one of the very disturbing things. I, I spoke to Martina Anderson, who's the who was the MEP for from Sinn Fein, and she told me that they were having an increasing number of reports that Frontex, the European agency Coast Guard, had been developing a technique which they were describing as very effective, so that the Coast Guard's high-powered boats would circle a refugees you know, raft or overloaded boat at high speed and at ever closer range, creating violent waves that shook the boat and often capsizing it. And I wondered if that was something that you'd encountered in your testimonies. Yeah, um, so I think probably, uh, to phrase this in a a legally uh, (laughs) accurate way, um, those accusations most likely refer to what's happening in the eastern Mediterranean and my reporting has been mostly focused on the central Mediterranean which like arguably what's happening there is actually worse in I don't want to say a lot worse because you can't compare you know one human rights abuse or potential human rights abuse to another but um, what's happening in the central Mediterranean has been that since 2017 Frontex carries out surveillance, but they don't actually use naval assets to, you know, basically if they had boats there, they would have to rescue people in certain situations to save their lives. So instead, what they've been doing is carrying out surveillance to spot the boats, but then supporting the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept those boats because a European vessel can't return people to Libya, but a a Libyan vessel can. And so it's basically a circumnavigation of international law. And um, what happens, I think, I'm not sure the exact latest stats, but I think last time I added it up, it was 126,000 men, women and children have been caught at sea this way, trying to reach Europe, forced back to Libya. And there they're often locked up indefinitely without charge, without trial in detention camps. And like, yeah, we were talking earlier about like my background in law, which is obviously limited. I did an undergrad in it, but I've become very, um, very conscious of actually how law and journalism do interact because a lot of my work would involve gathering information about human rights abuses that does end up then being used potentially in legal challenges. And actually the book has been cited in a submission to the International Criminal Court calling for named European officials to be investigated and potentially charged with crimes against humanity. 
Um, and that's in relation to these interceptions which are taking place. And, and various people have come out and said that crimes against humanity and war crimes are taking place against the people who are stopped re reaching Europe like this. Um, and sorry if that sounds very intense for everybody, but no. this, is, this is really the reality <clears throat> of what is happening. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy that more people aren't aware of it. Yeah, so, the, 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 so Frontex are deliberately, because of the duty that they have, they're, they're deliberately stepping back. They're not, they're not patrolling areas which are hot spots. Instead, they're surveilling them. Then, I mean, I'm conscious that since 2017, Libya's Coast Guard appears to have been picking up a huge amount of people, bringing them back, and as you say, putting them in concentration camps and the you know, sort of very respected aid agencies have been alleging serious torture and abuse. And I wondered if you had any, you know, personal stories, any particular stories you'd like to tell us, you know, just to give us an idea of, and I appreciate you use the word intense, but I think that this, this mm -hmm. can only talk, be talked about in, in an intense way. So with you having first-hand testimonies, perhaps you would uh, be prepared to, to tell us you know, one of those sorts of stories so that the listener can get a clear, realistic idea of the horrors of what's happening. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, like, yeah, the book, the book obviously that I wrote is full of those testimonies, but also those testimonies in the book are like a tiny proportion of what I was hearing. Um, and that's obviously a tiny proportion of the actual reality of what's happening. One that I can think of who I actually spoke to this woman quite recently um, a lady called Fatima from Gambia. She was with her uh, husband. They were living in Libya. And so Gambia is like a very poor country in West Africa. And they had gone to Libya not to cross to Europe, but because they wanted to earn money in Libya because um, people used to go to Libya also to work there and send money back. And he was working, I think, in construction, but I might be wrong. But they were earning enough money to send back to try and start building a house so that when they went to, back to Gambia, they could finally live there. And they had three children and she was pregnant as well with the fourth and um, he developed a heart problem. And also Libya then was, you know, became quite dangerous because of the, uh, the conflict and the, you know, the fall of Gaddafi and all of this. And they decided that they were going to try and stop the, across the sea to Europe just so that he could get health care because there was no other easy way for him to get health care. And so they were caught trying to do that, locked up indefinitely in a detention center called Zintan, where there was effectively no medical care. And I was in touch with people there. Um, someone was dying on average once a fortnight at the period that I was in touch with them um, from basically starvation, medical neglect, tuberculosis. And that was like, that's particularly when you consider most of these are quite young people, like a lot would be in their 20s. Um, yeah and teenagers as well and so Fatima her son died of appendicitis she said she tried for three days to get him uh to be taken to a hospital but that was refused he eventually died and then a few weeks later her husband died and she thinks that was partially the heart problem but exacerbated by the tragedy of their son's death um, and she ended up being sent back to Gambia through what I think was an EU-funded kind of returns repatriation program. But yeah, the husband and son are dead. And there was never any kind of investigation or, you know, an inquiry as to why they died, why they weren't given adequate medical care. Um, and yeah, that, that's, you know, that's just one example. Um, How many people are in those camps in Libya? 
It always changes. It's like a bit confusing to be certain because there's basically kind of purposefully not registration taken. And that's for various reasons, including that there's a lot of extortion that goes on. So like the camps are controlled or they're, they're, they're more like centers, but they're controlled by Libyan militias. So they can be like ostensibly associated with the UN-backed uh, Tripoli-based government. And people, I'm sure, know that there are multiple governments in Libya, but they're actually controlled by militias. And so those, the, 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 the concentration camps, as you described, them were actually controlled by militias in many cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't say concentration camps. I always well, attribute they, that one. But yeah. um, that was Pope, who called Pope Francis? Pope Francis has yeah. called them concentration camps. Well, if it's good camps. enough for Pope Francis, you know. And, and you're, you're, you're saying that, I wasn't aware of this, that, that often they're not even registering the people, they're not even noting their names, their details, etc., so that it's impossible to know who's there at any given time. And when people die, it's often not even documented. They're then yeah. buried without... And one example of that, which was really horrific, actually, was 2019, I think the 4th of July, um, there was a bomb, an airstrike hit a detention centre directly, the whole of it. And there was, I think... I think officially they said around 54 people were killed, but actually nobody really knows. And witnesses there told me they felt like it was many more people. And I think one person was unofficially identified. I don't think anyone was officially identified. And those people were buried in unmarked graves. And there was no, nobody could say who had been inside that hall at the time that it was hit. And I'm sure those families of those people, I even spoke to somebody whose friend had been killed and he said, you know, he knew the name of his friend, but he had no contact for the family. He never knew how he would ever tell them that that he had died. You know, they're in these detention centers where phones are banned, where, you know, you might not have access to a phone at all. And you, so you won't be able to keep your family updated anyway. So those families probably think maybe they died at sea. They'll, they'll never really know what has happened to their loved one. And basically, basically just... For the listener, that's very, very shocking. People are essentially just left there to rot. Then. Yeah. I mean, what's what's the plan? What's the strategy when they're in the detention camp? I mean, I think the plan. Well, I mean, yeah. I always find this really hard to answer because I get. I guess it depends who you're thinking of. Like, like what. Like, this is basically, it's a res the, the result of European anti-migration policy. So this is Europe trying to stop people from reaching our territory at any cost. The reality is that a lot of these people would have legitimate refugee claims course, if they could reach European territory. But because they can't, they can't make that claim. And you need to be on territory to make the claim to have international protection. Others wouldn't have a right to international protection under refugee law. And that was something that I, I started to question myself because, you know, we always as journalists or I was using the words refugees and migrants. And even I used those terms in the book, I think. But you have this term economic migrants. And I went kind of to investigate this to Sierra Leone, um, which is a West African country, one of the poorest in the world. And there was someone who had been in Libya who had been messaging me from a detention center who eventually, partially because of my involvement, ended up being sent back to Sierra Leone, which is what he wanted at that time. And I went to meet him. And it really made me start to question this idea of economic migrant because, like, sometimes poverty is a threat to life as well. And in Sierra Leone, the, the life expectancy at the time was, like, 
25 years, I think, less than it would be for a European. Like, I was there, I ended up living there for a year, by the way, just because it was COVID. And when I got there, it was very complicated to leave. And um, like I... Some type of indestructible martial arts expert, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who, 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 who craves the sort of the bloodiest well, part, yeah. parts of the world. And and and, and 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 has found herself to be absolutely indestructible. You know the sort of general who would lead her troops quite ahead of them and march march into the machine gun fire without <laughs> without ever without ever taking a bullet. It's quite extraordinary. It is incredible. I mean, your personality yeah, comes I across mean, very clearly when we're sitting here. And I mean, if the, if I mean, the yeah, I don't think it was like that. But all I was gonna say was that um, <laughs> the indestructible well, go on, Sally. speak, Sally. No, so. all, all I was gonna say was that like, because people here they say economic migrant, they think that that means you know you want nicer stuff or something like that. But actually, in a country like Sierra Leone, like you have no healthcare, you know, no functional healthcare system generally. If you're you know, during COVID, for example, there were no functional ventilators in the entire country. So if you needed a ventilator, you would die. Like if you needed an oxygen tank, you had to pay for it $75. And at the time, the annual uh, wage was like average wage. And this most people would earn way less was like $470 a year. So $75 for one oxygen tank, that's like totally unaffordable. So when you think about like, you know, economic migrant is like trying to actually be able to pay for health care for your family, for example, that's it makes you kind of reframe that in a way as to whether, you know, there is also a threat to life there, if that makes sense. It's a, another way of dehumanizing people, isn't it? Because and it is it's almost like when people talk and we know so much about, you know, the way language is used in this is so important and economic migrants are now almost at the at the bottom of the of the food chain for for uh, you know we don't have any time for them of course um but can you talk a bit Along about yeah, but we'll talk about that talk i want to talk about the language a bit because i think one of the first things you covered was uh david cameron doing a press conference where he talked when he was prime minister and he talked about the swarm of migrants and like what what is extraordinary and heartbreaking about your reporting is you know, we know that there are these people, not so much even on the fringes anymore, but everywhere talking in, in the worst, most, most dehumanizing language about human beings. But then, you know, when your reporting gets to the people we actually hope are going to actually be helping and protecting, there is, there is you know, there are so many, there are so many things have gone wrong through either uh, corruption or incompetence. Um, but talk a little bit about you know, I, parallel things of going to that press conference, hearing that, and that being a, maybe a starting point for your own uh, road in this kind of journalism. Because I think when Joe talks about you, I think it would be something that people would be interested in, how you, like you say, how you got to these places, but how you, you know, how you actually began the journey into this type of journalism is kind of extraordinary as well. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say that it was particularly worthy, to be honest. I that wasn't a press conference that I went to. I think um, what you're referring to is in 2015, I think it was August or the end of July, yeah. David Cameron made this comment about there being swarms of migrants, in quotation marks, um, trying to reach the UK. And at the time I was working for Vice News, if people know them, in mm. London. Um, and I was very much desk-based, so I was kind of covering all international news. But I basically wasn't allowed to leave my desk very often and... Uh, I'd been looking for an opportunity to go and do something. And okay. my editor at the time was like, 
what does that mean? Like when he says swarms of migrants, what is he talking about? And I was like, you know, send me, send me, I'll find out. So um, I was like, yeah, just send me to Cali. I'm going to figure out what's going on. And I went over. He finally said, yeah, I could go do something. I went over. I actually, at the time, Vice had given me like a thousand business cards and I had never really had a chance to use them. And so <laughs> I took like loads of business cards and just went over and everybody I met, I gave them my business card and I was like, stay in touch. Like, let me know if you make it to the UK. And I realized that, you know, these were people from loads of different countries, loads of different backgrounds, escaping many different things, loads of different reasons for coming to the UK. What's happened is, yeah, exactly, the the way that language is being used, and I hold myself responsible for this, by the way, like a lot of my reflection on this comes from how I personally have reported in the past. Um, the way that we use the term migrants or refugees, it, it's like lumping people into a homogenous mass when actually that's very, very far from the reality. And... Yeah, I I think that from from there, I mean, journalism is a bit like this. Like, I wasn't planning on focusing on migration at all. But from there, then you get people start contacting you, saying, report on this, report on this. I ended up going to a lot of the countries that I had met people from um, and working on a lot of different investigations and just following up leads that I had from people. I ended up working, actually, one, one guy who I met there, um, an English literature graduate called Ziad Gantor. He was from Syria and he was coming to UK. Um, he joked that he had, he had basically become an expert in Google Maps because he had been using Google Maps to kind of cross Europe wow. to reach there. And he met so many journalists on the way that he was like, I want to become a journalist now. <laughs> and so we stayed in touch and we ended up partnering up on an investigation because um, he had heard that a lot of people a lot of Syrians were trying to return back to Syria and for me I'm always interested in the questions that the general public maybe also are asking where you know the gaps that might exist I, f I, heard, I feel like people were saying oh why don't they just go home and mm. and actually he was also saying people are going home but then they're disappearing and we don't know why and so we were we were like well why don't we try and figure out what's happening to the people who do try to go home and actually that was kind of I felt like when I told people what I was doing, they were like, oh, you shouldn't be looking into that because maybe it'll be used as an argument to send people back. But actually what we discovered was um, really horrific. It was that people, particularly young men who tried to return to Syria, were being arrested on arrival, uh, imprisoned, sometimes tortured, then forced to go on the front lines um, and facing a lot of kind of horrific abuses. And that was my first experience of uh, a big investigation. The Irish Times blessed and published it at like 3,500 words and also agreed to tr to publish an Arabic translation. And I think it's the only ever Arabic article on the Irish Times. Um, and wow. yeah, my editors were a bit worried people would think the site had broken down. <laughs> right. but, it's that, but, um, that sort of implacable quality. You just find it very difficult to say no. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Sally, you know, but you, 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 I mean, the, the, the idea of swarms, you know, swarms of rats, swarms of blue bottles, these images that are conjured up, you know, the invasions, the language that's being used now by a small rump of people, some senators in Ireland, you know, this John McGrip media stuff, you know. Uh, and I, I, I just wanted to go back to what you were talking about living in Sierra Leone for a year because I think that because you're so matter-of-fact and selfless, if you don't mind me saying so, through your writings, etc., that part of it can be missed. But maybe give us some idea of... Because it's not as if to say you've got some millionaire benefactor who's saying, look, Sally, travel the world. We will fund whatever you need to be funded. You know, give us some idea of, for example, your daily life in Sierra Leone when you decided that, that... that that was something that needed a story that needed to be brought to the wider public. What what's your what was your daily life like there? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, well, Sierra Leone was a bit of a weird one because I had been living in Uganda for two years before then. So basically, I started reporting on this. Uh, I've been freelance since 2016 when I left Vice, and I started reporting on this Libya topic. Um, 2018 and that was when I got this unexpected first message and then to cut a long story short I started uh, I started like posting screenshots of different messages on Twitter and basically ended up I thought that it was going to end quickly it didn't I ended up with this Twitter thread that got millions of views and the result of basically that in a way, and also publishing a lot of reports then in in basically every media you can possibly imagine, um, was that I started getting contacted by more and more people who were locked up in detention, as well as more and more humanitarian workers, uh, like government people, loads of different people were contacting me looking for information or sharing information or trying to, you know, pass things between each other because they wouldn't necessarily have had each other's contacts. And I ended up playing this quite key role, which was very unexpected and it's not a sign that I'm a great person it's a sign that the system had completely broken down and um yeah because of that I basically had to make some choices which involved so the way it worked because people in detention they had hidden phones so they wouldn't be able to message a lot during the day because their phones like would be confiscated um so they'd be messaging at night so it would be probably from like 11 p.m. my phone would start going off and then probably for like 4 or 5 hours I'd be talking to people in loads of different detention centers gathering information from them what had happened that day I'd sometimes do a roundup and send that to various different organizations that maybe could do something with that information I'd think about whether I was going to do a report on it if something was particularly um you know if we had kind of reached a stage where it was helpful to go public and because of that yeah I like I couldn't have held it down a staff job but also um 
I, I just felt like this was one of the most important stories in the world for me to be covering. I just felt like this was so overlooked and so important. And it said so much about where we are in Europe and as Europeans as well. And for that reason, I wanted to be able to publish in many different media outlets. I didn't want to be tied to one. And I didn't think that one would allow me to constantly publish on this one um, situation. And so, yeah, as part of during that period, I moved to Uganda then because uh, the Irish Times, and I want to shout out to them here because I really love them. They said that if I move to an African country, I can do Africa coverage regularly. So I was like, well, that will be great because then I have kind of a regular thing that I can, you know, earn money off. And also, you know, that would be interesting to do. And then I can also just continue to cover this story really, really closely. And so I was in Uganda for two years and then... During that time, first I was approached, I think, to write this book or write a book about the general topic. And I didn't really want to because I was kind of hoping that it was going to end quickly. And then I realized that actually I should because I had gathered so much information. But at that point then, it re I realized it's really hard to get it published. So even though I had been approached, it, it actually, what, for various reasons with the very complicated publishing industry, I was then told, oh, no, it's not commercial, you know, nobody will read this were you, book. Were you living on your own in Uganda for two years? Uh, no, I lived with people. <laughs> Like, uh, and how were you? I mean, you were surviving just by freelance articles in the paper. Yeah, but I mean, journals, etc. The irony of all of this, by the way, is that I was an economic migrant to Africa during this period because I was just going to say that shame on you. It was much shame on you. Did you not? Did nobody? Did nobody chant out there? Uganda is full. Yeah, it was hashtag much, Uganda is full. Exactly, it was much cheaper for me to live there than it would have been for me to live in. And how London did you get from there? How did you get from there to another to 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 the war torn sort of Sierra Leone? Well, Sierra Leone's not war torn anymore. It's pretty peaceful, um, but ha like I got so poverty is a big problem there. <clears throat> yeah, poverty and yeah. And and you lived in Sierra Leone. Tell us something about that. Yeah, so that was basically during COVID. I was like, where can I go that's relevant to the book? Because at that point I had a book deal and I was like, where can I go that's relevant to the book that I'm allowed to get into like with COVID restrictions? And Sierra Leone at the time I was able to get there. Did they not have any COVID restrictions? No, no, they did. Like, and I followed everything. I had to get tested, tested on arrival right. twice. I did. Like I did everything, but I was just, I think, I don't know, like in Africa it was very like watching all the news from Europe, everybody was very scared of what was happening in Europe. It was very like in Uganda, for example, they'd show us all these videos, like scary videos of COVID in Europe and be like, nobody wants to go to Europe. Like it's <laughs> really scary over there. But were, and, you uh, thinking, and were you thinking like that? Because most people all around the world were thinking, I want to get home. I want to get, you know, do you not think I, like, I, but you thought I'll, I'll, I, you know, I, my reporting, I can go to somewhere here and make progress on, on my reporting and on the book by being somewhere like Sierra Leone. Yeah, like I, I spent the whole first two years of COVID pretty much in, I'm going to say first, no, maybe first year in Africa anyway. I, I didn't, I found it really strange actually how many people were like, I'm going to evacuate to Europe when like we were watching that COVID was yeah. in Europe and it wasn't so bad in Africa at the time. And for me, I was also like, I'm a reporter, like my job is covering Africa. I'm not going to leave right now when this huge story is uh, developing. And to be honest, it was kind of shocking 
how, for example, a lot of the aid organizations kind of evacuated their staff and stopped operating during that time when the need was so great. Like, I was thinking, is this not the time when you mm. should be helping? And I spent the first seven months of COVID in northern Uganda, which is a very, very impoverished part of the country. And um, people started starving, like, very, very quickly. Paint a picture of your life there, your daily life. Like, you you know, when you were in northern Uganda and that sort of terrible poverty. Paint a picture of your life for us there. Uh, well, if we had 7 p.m. curfew every day. Also, driving cars was banned. So, um, basically... That's how Uganda tried to control the COVID spread. They just banned driving cars. But um, Where did you live out there? I just lived in a house. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. And no, but it was nice. Like people were helping each other. People were getting on. It's not like poverty doesn't mean that everybody's. Oh, no, I appreciate I, under, I understand that. I'm just trying to get a picture of you. Of but you're not you. watching Tiger King or doing whatever everyone else was doing during lockdown. Like. I think I watched some things, but the problem, we didn't have electricity all the time. So <laughs> sometimes it would go off for like three days. So then we ended up buying a generator. And then, um, yeah, I mean, there were various strange things. Ha- like now to think about it, it's quite weird. But like at the time, you know, you you adapt. Like yeah. every week there was a, it was called the coronavirus task force meeting under a mango tree. And so everybody who had any involvement in covid response would meet under this mango tree and then the meetings basically if under you were, the same mango tree it was a very big mango tree <laughs> and if you um and did you have to go to these meetings i mean i didn't have to but i first i was kind of Is going this the to, sort of local community would meet for it was a, the, yeah the town well it became a city actually during that period officially um but it was basically the ordc so the president's representative and then kind of the head of the hospital and the head of Basically, everyone wanted to be on the committee because you got a pass for your car and nobody was allowed to drive a car um, unless you were in the task force. <laughs> so the, the group of people that came grew and grew and grew and <laughs> became like 150 people and everyone wanted to have a say. So the meeting started lasting like five hours every Friday and it all got a bit ridiculous. But um, I think I stopped attending them eventually. But and when you went to Sierra Leone... How how did you how were you able to gain access, for example, to detention camps, to things like that during, you know, during your various travels? How were you? I mean, how did you, how did you get access to camps? You know, to people in these situations. So I did. I didn't actually go to. Uh, I mean, Sierra Leone. I didn't go to meet. I went to meet someone who had been in a camp in Libya, right. um, or in a detention center in Libya. He wasn't in Sierra Leone. He was he was free again. Um, I actually saw him also quite recently, in summer anyway, and he's doing quite well. But um, I, the people that I was in touch with who were in Libya, they were the ones who were locked up and they were the ones using phones. And I never managed to go to Libya. Actually, partially why I stayed in Sierra Leone so long was that I applied for a visa to go to Libya from Sierra Leone. And so basically because I had been in Sierra Leone a certain period of time, I had to become a resident and to I think after two months I then became a resident and basically to become a resident I just had to pay five hundred dollars um and then I was a resident and then I could apply for a visa for Libya because I was a resident. Is it a, is it a taxi event? <laughs> no, I don't think so. But um, but yeah, basically then Libya, the Libyan embassy. So you could be as herself since. 
Yeah, the Libyan a embassy. Box. <laughs> the Libyan embassy then kind of did this uh, classic thing of being like, next week we'll give you visa, next week we'll give you visa, and so every week I'd go back and be like, is it ready? And they'd be like, not yet. So I ended up waiting like quite a long time for that. Um, and in the end, I wasn't able to go to Libya. And to be honest, that was probably good because for security reasons, I don't think it was safe for me anyway, but I thought that I should try. It, the, uh, the, it's, it's believed that since 2014, this is the International Organization for Migration, that between 15,000 and 30,000 people have drowned in the Mediterranean, and that is believed to be a great underestimation. And, you know, in, uh, in July 2022, I know you're familiar with this, but just to set up the, the, the question, the European Union's own anti-fraud investigators discovered that the European border agency Frontex was covering up and actually helping to finance illegal pushbacks of asylum seekers. Border guards were, I'm just quoting, systematically dumping asylum seekers adrift at sea in the Aegean, either in rickety boats or in inflatable life rafts. The investigators from the fraud office, the anti-fraud office, reviewed private emails and WhatsApp messages from Fabrice Legere, a real charmer, the former head of Frontex and his team. And they had lied to the European Parliament. They concealed the fact that the agency was even providing financial support for, for pushbacks. And the incident that gave rise to the investigation was the Greek Coast Guard towing an inflatable refugee boat behind it with 30 refugees in the vessel. And instead of bringing the asylum seekers to shore, as they were obliged to, they dragged them back towards Turkey and officials were able to follow the pushback live. And that, that, that led to that investigation. And what I wanted to ask you is, since that was uncovered, since that sort of shocking level of, 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 of disregard for other human beings was uncovered, has anything changed? Yeah, I mean, Fabrice Lagerie, he resigned uh, April 2022. And I think there was kind of hope at that time that there would be some sort of proper reckoning and that hasn't happened. And I speak all the time to politicians, European politicians, European bureaucrats, people in power in, in various parts of Europe. And they say that until the general public care, they are not going to do anything. They're like, this is what the public want. We're implementing policies that the public want. And I think with European elections coming up in May, there's a big concern that, you know, far right will take over, which is what they always say. And at, at the same extent, like other people will say, well, you know, are your policies not far right? Like, is, is the way to appease the far right by acting like the far right? <laughs> Um, and yeah, which doesn't work. I mean, there's been there there have been studies carried out in relation to that, and the idea of embracing the far right and trying to get close to them to draw their fire. And you know, I mean, I don't know if you heard Mary Lou recently talking about you know you know we have to understand the feelings of residents you know who are standing who are burning down, burning down hostels and burning down pubs and hotels that are that are that have been abandoned and are being reconditioned for these vulnerable families um i agree entirely with you about that but I, I think yeah I, I think um 
I mean, maybe people will be interested as well because I got asked over to the European Parliament in November uh, to make a speech at the Conference of Ombudsman, which was Emily O'Reilly was uh, was in charge of that. And the speech is on my very terrible website, uh, sallyhayden.net. And basically I'd speak about like, yeah, what's happening is a global inequality crisis, dehumanization is happening, um, blaming vulnerable people for things that they're not responsible for. And yeah, I think the framing of all of this is, you know, the the framing is just really problematic. And obviously everybody can ask their own questions about how that sits and how they think things should be framed. But I do think that that's something that everybody should be questioning. You know, as a journalist, I don't want to tell people what they should think or what the conclusions should be. But I do think that people need to to have accurate information and also to be able to question you know, the rhetoric that they hear yeah. and, and what they're told. Did and you, do you think that's, sorry, do you think that we're moving further away from that? Because as, as Joe says, as you said, there is a more of a tendency to kind of say, oh, you know, how do we negotiate with the, uh, <clears throat> with the far right? You know, and you talk about language and you, we see what's happening in Ireland. We see stop the boats in the UK. Like it's, it's an extraordinary, uh, if they're extraordinary, like that's extraordinary language to be using. Stop the boats because, and it's it's deliberate. The boats, the boats aren't empty. It's an invasion. Yeah, the, yeah, but All the boats aren't empty. The boat, it's the boat. Like it's people. Like, and it is amazing when you think about that human reaction. Say from like twenty, was it twenty fifteen? The small Syrian boy washed up on the beach, and everyone had that human reaction. Yeah, for for a day or two. For a, for, for, yeah, for a while. I and, think it's, and now it goes. I mean the the. Stop me if I'm wrong about this, Sally, but the central and most powerful point of your work is that all of these, all of these people who have drowned, all of these people who are held in these horrific conditions are victims of the world's inequality. You know, that they're not born, they're not privileged enough to have been born somewhere where they've got freedom of movement like us. As you say, you know, you were an economic migrant to Uganda. If someone said she's an economic migrant, I mean, we would just burst out laughing and say it's absolutely ludicrous. Simply due to the luck of where you were born or where I was born, I can travel anywhere in the world. While much of the rest of the world now has to risk their lives in the hopes of, I think, the point you're making of having a secure, dignified life where they can provide for themselves and provide for their families. Yeah, and, and just to, to expand, I mean, I was not just an economic migrant to Uganda, I was also an economic migrant to London because when I graduated, it was 2012, 2013, and that was when Ireland, as everyone knows, was in the throes of the horrible financial crash. And I remember the feeling of like, there not being opportunities here, and I went to London to look for work. And well, we'll not be apologising <laughs> to the English for Sally Hayden. I can assure you of that. <laughs> but I, but after I, everything they did to us. <laughs> but I do, I do remember because I reported on Brexit. I was actually at the UKIP party on the night of Brexit with Nigel Farage announcing oh, victory. Yeah, and um, did but he I sing re- come out and black come out your black and tans for you? Not that I remember. He does that for fi- he does that for fifty five pounds sterling. Yeah, yeah. but I re- I remember Maybe. saying to people there Maybe. like I'm an economic migrant. You know, and and I was like, I, I've come here to steal your jobs. Like, that's literally why I'm here. And they'd be like, oh, but you're different. And like, it's very hard not to interpret that as racism, isn't it? Yeah. You and also, and it's the same when you look at what's happening here, people forgetting. And we've seen it with Ballon Robe and we've seen the videos. Uh, Ballon Robe, yes. Yeah, but, but like for 1989, the whole, cl- you know, we all know what 
three we, quarters of the three quarters migration. of the young people who have been left. But I saw I saw today. You know, I mean, of course, it's all completely irrational and ridiculous, and it's been it's been powered by darker forces above. But I saw today the. The, that English woman who's one of the Ballinrobe racists. So the English, I suppose the, the Ballinrobe English racist, she was complaining bitterly in a video that, that the other Ballinrobe racists had turned on her because she was English, apparently. You know. But you I, know, I, I wanted to... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, uh, because your audience, I know a lot of them are Irish, I would assume. Mm. Um, there was one other thing I thought was important to highlight, which I think people should be questioning, um, which is the lack of Africa coverage in the Irish media. And I'm actually on book leave at the moment, as I told you guys, and I was the only contracted journalist for an Irish media outlet covering the entire continent of Africa, 1.4 billion people. And now that I'm on book leave, as, as far as I know anyway, there's nobody doing it. And I think like that also plays a role in terms of people not having a consciousness of the crises that are happening across Africa. And, you know, we'll hear people here be like, oh, but the Ukraine war is, you know, much more serious. And you can't ever compare these things in a way, but also like, you know, some of the stats, more than 7 million displaced by the war in Sudan, 7 million nearly displaced in Congo by conflict, hundreds of thousands could have died in the recent war in northern Ethiopia, um, tens of thousands said to potentially have dried, died because of drought in Somalia in 2022. And all of those things, like they deserve a lot more coverage and a lot more consciousness. And also the other thing that I always feel is lacking here is just general coverage of, of normal life across Africa, because I think people here sometimes because a lot of the the understanding of these situations comes through kind of charity campaigns they also don't necessarily I think that can also contribute to dehumanization and that's not to say anything bad about the charities but we need media mm. coverage of you know normal life happening as well and and positive things happening because otherwise people can start to feel these aren't people like us and and my experience working in you know in many african countries is that there's all sorts of like young exciting talented people doing loads of different things but they're just facing a lot more challenges than we are in because of inequality yeah we I mean like you're absolutely right. i mean we a good friend of the podcast is the the prince charles anye bunam who's who's nigerian and uh, and we've had him on two or three times, and he 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 makes that point very strongly. You know that what we see instead of seeing, I mean, okay, during the World Cup or something like that, we see a vibrant Nigerian team, vibrant Cameroon team, you know. Mm. But aside from that, what we see in the television, you know, are small children who are blind with you know maybe flies climbing across their face, reinforcing that stereotype of. Uh, and I know the I know the point that you're making. Look, is that that the charity is doing its work. But it reinforces that sort of idea of these, you know, uh, spongers who are then going to come here and sponge around in Ireland, you know, and watch the TV, you know, do all that sort of thing. Oh, they've, they've actually got a television, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of a vibrant, true reporting of, of, of what's going on. And I think that that's, that's why your work is so striking and, if you don't mind me saying, so extraordinary. Dion has been talking about you to me since we started the podcast. I wanted to ask you um, whether or not you'd been to the uh, event in the Passionskirk Church in Kreuzberg in Berlin when the names of the 51,000 people said to have died trying to reach Europe since 1983 were read out. 
No, but I think I referenced that in a, a op-ed for the Irish Times. Um, someone emailed me about that. Do you, Joe mentioned. You know how long it took them to read out the names of the fifty-one thousand dead through the night. Thirty-four hours. You know, and again, it's it's the same point you make about Africa that because, and I think a, a huge amount of it is racism. You know that that black black lives are worth worth must you know much less than white lives. You know that that whereas. You know, five or six white people die in an incident. Well, it's all over our news. Millions of people die in the Congo. It's never mentioned. I mean, unless you're, unless you're like, you know, Dion or yourself or myself, where you're, where you're avidly reading and exploring the world, you don't get to hear about it at all. And how do you, how do we, how do we change that? Or is anyone interested in power in changing that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few. It's tricky for me to answer that because, like I said, I, I'm always feeling so guilty now that I'm on book leave and I'm not doing my job, which is covering Africa. Um, but even having one person covering Africa, like that's like that's ridiculous. Anyway, you know, it's it's it felt impossible. And I was when I like the last few years, I've been trying to do a mix of stories. We ran a a series called Young Africans Rising at the Irish Times, which was looking at loads of different industries. Like I did one on the film industry in Ghana, um, tech industry in Nigeria, surfing in Sierra Leone, um, interviewing lots of different people who were doing interesting stuff. And then also reporting on the, the various crises and the backgrounds to those and trying to put in a lot of context as well, like how this situation became as it is. Um, but yeah, to get people to care, I don't know, because I, I would be hopeful that it would change, but I guess it needs, it needs both. I, I hate blaming the media for stuff because I am the media, you know, and it's not like you're blaming individuals. A lot of journalists are trying to do the best they can, but I do think that Africa, we need a lot more coverage from the whole continent and we need much better coverage in Ireland. And I don't know who to push to get that, but I think that that needs to, that would at least play some sort of role in improving yeah. the situation, maybe. I'm Tr conscious that... Um that your time is very precious. Sorry, Dion, you were going to say. I was just going to ask, just finally, Joe mentioned earlier that you were, you know, on a crusade. Is that language you, is that a word you would use about what you're doing? Because I know you're conscious, you're always very clear, you're a journalist, you're reporting. But how hard is it not to kind of stray into actual activism? Yeah, I mean, that's been a, it's, it's been a very, very weird thing to report on for me because... Um, I didn't imagine that I would focus so much, like for many different reasons, to be honest, I didn't imagine that I would focus so much on one particular story. Not that it's one story, it's many stories, but it's one kind of broader topic. And I didn't imagine that I could become so relevant in it. And I have played a role. I tried to write that into the book because initially when I was writing the book, I wanted myself not to be in it at all. And I was only actually going to have myself in the the prologue and the author's note and not mention myself at all apart from that. And then I realized I had actually been playing a role because I had been passing information through different people and there was certain things that I had done that, that had been kind of relevant. And normally as a journalist, you wouldn't, you know, you step back, you're just observing. And in this situation, I did end up being kind of 
very um I I played a much bigger role than I ever could have imagined to be honest and I haven't even I didn't even fully appreciate that until like quite recently even I've been meeting people who were in those detention centers at that time and were saying like do you remember when you told those people that and that this was the reaction that happened on the detention center you know for example they'd be like we are starving for two days and then you tweeted about it and then we got food or then you you know someone needed medical care and you contacted these people and then that medical care came and for me that was you know normally as a journalist you wouldn't really be playing that type of role but that was just the necessity of the situation and I have been asked to do a lot of things that I wouldn't have imagined that I would do, like speaking in the European Parliament, for example, like, um, you know, even being interviewed right now, like I'm not, I wasn't really doing interviews before, uh, but now I guess I am. <laughs> well, I think, it, uh, I think, you know, that uh, you, you're, uh, I don't say this in any critical way at all, you know, you you seem to me to be absolutely incapable of small talk because, you know, it's a great quality. There is, there yeah. is this quality of, 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 of and and uh, you know, one of my heroes, George Orwell. The fact that you you you're the you're the George Orwell, and isn't it funny when you try to compliment her? She immediately looks down and sort of goes, "No, please, please stop this immediately." You know, but I, 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 you know, I do want to pay tribute to the extraordinary work that you're doing. I've I've no doubt now that your life is set on this course, and uh, you you seem to me to. To, to have found your true vocation is that presumptuous of me to say that I mean I think I, I think I'll definitely keep doing journalism um, and I'm working on another book at the moment but in terms of the topic I think I'm always trying to see where I can add value and uh, it's a bit strange when you write a book I don't know for various reasons I'd never written a book before so I didn't really understand how it worked and when the book came out, I just kind of thought the day that it got published, you know, I stayed up all night. I was so nervous and I was thinking, what's going to happen tomorrow when this is out there in the world? And then you realize, like, nobody's going to read it. So <laughs> then you suddenly have to do all this publicity. And that was like n nearly two years ago that I started doing the publicity. And obviously, I'm still doing it. And I'll um, not be seeing her in low, low magazine. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's just tricky because it's like you yeah. think that if the book exists, people will read it. It and then you realize with something like this actually you really really have to encourage them and now it's coming out in uh, different languages it's out in Italian and Dutch and it's coming out Spanish next month Polish and French in May and so I'm doing publicity for those and I say publicity but it's obviously talking about the topic but at the same stage I really felt like that wasn't my job like to be speaking about this over and over again in the same way and I got quite depressed like right at the beginning because I'd be doing these public events and everybody would be like, well, is there any like, is there any hope? Can you give us some hope? And I'd be like, it's not really my job to give you hope. And the fact that you're asking me this over and over again is make is stripping me of all of my hope. And that made me feel that I wanted to stop doing events. And more recently, I've been like, first of all, I've noticed that more people are talking about it. And secondly, like maybe you don't need to have hope to do the right thing. That's been kind of my uh, realization. And so for that reason, I've still been doing some, but um, 
But yeah, I don't know if that explains very well. It's not like I had any goal to keep doing this. It was just that when you realize no one's reading the book, you've spent years putting together this evidence and then you want people to read it and then you're told nobody's reading it, then you just continue. George Orwell said that it is fatal to look poor and hungry. It makes people want to kick you. Sally, um, when you see someone like that, you want to lift them up and tell their story. And for that, I think we're, we're all extremely grateful. We really are. Thank you for coming in, Sally. I know you're about to go to Beirut for work on the book, and we're really, really grateful you came in today. And my fourth time we drowned. This woman will never get life insurance. I mean, she has absolutely no chance. (laughs) She has absolutely no chance. But I would just, you know, we I look forward to the next book. And my fourth time we drowned is is a compelling read, which I would recommend to everybody listening. We're very proud that you're Irish. Thank, Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thanks for having me. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.